Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Nicholas Kiermetli here with another episode of We Speak Condo, and we are back after a long hiatus. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, our co-host, Mr. Ari Soroka, was diagnosed with throat cancer a number of months ago, and we spent about uh, six months uh, just sort of taking a break from the podcast, but uh, he's back in the saddle uh, better than ever. And we thought that now would be a good time to reintroduce the podcast, given everything that's been going on with COVID-19. And we have with us here today, uh, Ms. Carol Dirks, who is a partner at Fogler Rubinoff Condo Law Group. And she's going to be helping us discuss some of the uh, very uh, challenging, uh, controversial issues that we've all been dealing with as condo managers in this profession. And as well, we'll be talking a little bit about some helpful things that we can do uh, for condo boards. So I'd like to introduce Carol Dirks. Uh, we've had the pleasure of working together for a number of years, uh, back when I was a property manager, although it doesn't seem like that was uh, too long ago, uh, but uh, she was one of the first uh, condo lawyers that uh, I'd ever worked with. And I'm happy to say that uh, we've had a wonderful working relationship since then. And um, she's definitely one of the best condo lawyers out there uh, who also practices uh, in uh, condo litigation. So. Carol, welcome uh, to the show. This is uh, your first episode with us, hopefully not the last. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start to dive into all these issues that uh, all these condo owners are facing today? Sure. No, thank you, Nicholas. It's really a pleasure to be part of this podcast. And yes, I've enjoyed working with you at a number of different sites over the years and, uh, and uh, working together, bringing our expertises together. Um, so in terms of uh, myself, I've been doing this a long time. I've been started doing condominium law since uh, 1996, so it's over 20, about 24 years now. And I have to say, like talking about this subject today, that in all those 24 years, this really is a first for everybody. I mean, I think um, we had challenges in the condominium community, but nothing like this um, for the condominium community and so many other communities and businesses and it really is um, something that's new and, and something that even in terms of the legal practice, we've really had to think about things, how to advise our clients and respond to these uh, different issues that have come up. Well, the interesting thing, Carol, I remember we were chatting even before we set up this podcast about what the legislation will be today, tomorrow, next week. It seems like the government is changing a lot of things on the fly. And I mean, I think that's partly because, as you said, we are in new territory here. We've never really experienced this kind of issue uh, within our, our province, within our country, um, certainly within condominiums. Uh, although the government, I think, is doing a wonderful job, we're all sort of figuring out as we go. And one thing that you mentioned to me was legally, we have to stay ahead of the curve. And it seems like every couple of days, there's some new legislation coming out that, you know, sort of. Uh, this disrupts what the common practice has been. And I guess that's one of the biggest reasons that we're here today. Absolutely. It's true because, I mean, I even think back when um, in February, some of the questions we were asked by the clients and what we were telling them based on what was happening at that time, you know, it has changed in terms of the advice we're giving now. And it's not to say that the advice was wrong before, but as things got more serious, as more restrictions have come into place, we've all then had to adjust and I know we're going to talk about things like amenities 
uh, in buildings, do we close them or not? Well, that whole subject has really evolved in the last six weeks since uh, we were first talking about this. Well, why don't we dive right into that subject? Because that's a perfect segue. And I know that a lot of managers have already gone so far as to close their amenities, uh, their pools, their fitness centers, and uh, everything that would inhibit people uh, to be getting this, this, uh, this virus. But what has changed in the legal world uh, for closing the facilities? What are the risks, I guess, and what is the advice that, that you've come across for condo corps? So, I mean, the hard point at the start was always that you're paying for these amenities through your common expenses. Owners are entitled, you would say, uh, to be able to use those facilities. Um, and, and it's really been tough given what's happened. Um, and, it, and then the morph has been to now say, you know what, um, given the, safe, the life safety issues, um, given the, that it impacts other people than just residents, for example, the people that are going in to run these facilities, the cleaners, et cetera, it's just balancing what's more important. And also we, now we are mandated to stay uh, in small groups, so we can't have large groups of people be coming together. So uh, the advice currently now, um, and I, I think um, across the board is that these amenities have and should be closed um, and, and until, until further notice, until we're in a position to be able to have people come back together and until we're able to spread, uh, control the spread of the, of the virus from the typical things you'd see in the amenities, touching things, uh, people getting in contact together. Um, so, I mean, we are telling our clients uh, if they haven't done so re already, that they should be closing these amenities until further notice. Have you found that a lot of clients still haven't closed those facilities? I think as of this week, um, I would be very surprised. I have not yet spoken to a client that says that they still have them open. But, you know, as of a week ago, that was a different situation. There were still a few that were um, on the fence about it. Uh, I think that's now been closed. We've also actually had uh, and a resident um, utilize or make a request on the basis of the human rights code to be mm. able to use these facilities. And again, that's a tough decision to make because if you have somebody claiming that they need to exercise, uh, I don't know why they couldn't possibly do it in their unit or go outside, but you know, these are issues that boards are having to deal with and they're, and they're you know, there's no um, completely correct answer. Well, you raise an interesting question with respect to human rights because you could be looking at a rock and a hard place and the condominium is right in between that because if you close the facility and someone demands human rights and wants in it and you're going to be dealing with a human rights claim versus what happens if you have the facility open and then someone goes into that facility and they get COVID-19, knock on wood, now you could be exposed to a, a lawsuit for violating health and safety, Perhaps the condo corporation or the management might be liable for, I don't know if it's following the government instructions, if condo corporations were explicitly under that uh, ban by the Ford government to have uh, non-essential businesses close, like recreational facilities, uh, because it wasn't exactly clear if a pool, a swimming pool, a public pool, uh, has that same classification as a condominium pool. But would there be sort of a risk there by having to weigh whether you're going to be sued for human rights or whether you're going to be sued by, by an owner for contracting an illness? I mean, there's always a risk with anything. Lawyers will always say that. There's always someone that's going to try to make an argument. I think in these very unusual times, um, you know, it would be reasonable for a board to weigh in on obviously protecting majority of the people. 
um, and also protecting the workers that are coming to the site. And again, under the Human Rights Code, it's undue hardship. Um, um, sorry, the board must take reasonable steps to accommodate. And, and in the circumstances, I think, you know, to accommodate somebody at the risk of others um, would be a decision that the board um, properly could make, should be making in, in favor of the, of the majority of the people there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the first and foremost uh, thought in everyone's mind, I suppose, right now really should be the health and safety of any, anybody that's working within a condo or living within a condo. Uh, but interestingly, on that topic, uh, we have owners that live in condos. We have residents that are, are could be tenants, they could be owners. Uh, we have employees that work at corporations. And that's not only your property managers or your third party contracted services like security or cleaning, some corporations have employees like cleaners that they have on their own payroll, uh, superintendents, some have in-house security. Uh, you brought up an interesting point with respect to human rights. Uh, something that you said that sort of caught my attention was what happens if a condo corporation has an employee and they don't properly equip them to do the job? So for example, if you have a cleaner that's going around the building cleaning and the corporation doesn't provide them with adequate gloves or uh, sanitizing or masks given what's been going on uh, could the corporation be liable or could one of those employees of their saying you know I have a human rights issue for my safety uh, it's not being it's not being followed is, is there any sort of consideration for that so in Ontario any employee who feels that they're in an unsafe working environment they actually have the right they wanted to uh, to bring in someone from the ministry to decide whether or not it was unsafe or not and for condos, a lot of the employees are through a, um, a contracted company, such as a cleaning company, or sometimes even um, some of the other service companies. So they, their employers would be responsible to ensure that, um, that they are providing whatever equipment their employees need to be able to work as safely uh, as possible. Um, certainly, if the condo is an employer directly, uh, it would have that same obligation, and that would mean making sure that people do have gloves, masks, as, we, as you mentioned, uh, the adequate cleaning supplies to be able to do their job um, and minimize any risks that they have. And, and, you know, we have to be so thankful for these employees, you know, whether they're in condos or, or in our public agencies who are coming to work every day, trying to make our lives safer, the occupants of our buildings safer, and we want to ensure that we're doing as much as possible for them. So I suppose it would be a good practical tip then for managers who might be listening that they have meetings with their staff, whether they're third-party contractors or employees, but especially if they're employees, and ensure that everybody feels like they're being uh, protected, that their safety is being taken care of, and perhaps even putting in some sort of policy in place that provides a mechanism if the employee is not feeling uh, that those needs are being met, that there's some way that there can be discussion. Because I can see this sort of snowballing uh, and getting out of control if uh, people really don't feel like they're being appreciated or respected in this time. Uh, and I, I know of situations in buildings where there is a cleaning staff or security staff um, that could come into contact or feel like they might have come into contact with someone that has uh, COVID-19 and then they don't really know what to do. And so I think it probably is, is very important and, and perhaps you would agree um, that any employee uh, working at the corporation has some understanding of what they can do in these kinds of circumstances. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think 
a lot of it does fall on management in that role because boards are going to rely on management to take those steps. And if, if they're not, they don't feel that management's doing enough in that part, it, the board is ultimately responsible. So, um, you know, absolutely employees of the condo should feel that they can come forward to speak to management or, or, or communicate to the board about any concerns they have if they don't think enough is being um, dealt with or if, if policies need to be put into place, emergency policies such as visitors and um, who, who's going up to units, who's removing garbage, all these different sort of issues um, and um, to ensure that they're being able to be as safe as possible and, um, and the uh, chance of contraction is as, 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 as low as possible. And if I suppose whether it's management, a third party or, or a board uh, breaches these sort of um, policies or recommendations, even by, by Health Canada, for example, to congregate in groups of five, and they have facilities like amenities that are open or they choose to have in-person board meetings with groups of five, can they be held personally liable or is that a corporate liability that the corporation carries? So, I mean, the corporation, um, is certainly at risk if it's knowingly permitted people to congregate uh, in numbers um, and they're not doing anything about it then yes I'd say the corporation and possibly even the board if they're just not wanting to implement the necessary policies that they are potentially at risk uh, they need to make sure if they see groups together uh, that if there's security on site that security goes over and, and talks to those people uh, or some communication going to them uh, we've had situations where because the amenities have closed, people then are congregating in lobby areas and in, in other areas. Um, so again, we need to be very mindful to keep reminding people uh, that they need to properly distance each other from each other. And if they refuse, then we need to take steps to, um, to, to break up the party uh, as much as possible right mm -hmm. and and certainly there should not be any condominium that's offering their party room for for uh um to be rented right now in, in these circumstances um even guest suites we have a lot of facilities aside from just the amenities the the gym and the pools that are um being advised to close at this time until until we get this thing under control it's interesting you mentioned party rooms and guest suites because what we have done in terms of congregation of, of owners in lobbies is actually move the furniture from the lobbies into some of the storage areas or amenities that are not being used like the party room and keeping them under lock and key. So while we need to have areas for people that are disabled or, or have issues uh, with mobility to sit if they need to go to the lobby for some reason, uh, it at least prohibits people from, you know, lounging in, in those areas when the furniture is not available. Uh, so that might be a, a quick practical tip. I think that's a great tip, actually. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my clients who aren't doing that, they should be doing that. Good. Well, hopefully, hopefully someone takes, uh, takes some value from it. Um, but uh, with respect to the, the facilities themselves, uh, I suppose now is, is not the time where people are really gonna be looking at uh, doing any sort of short-term leasing or booking uh, amenities for party rooms or, or events. I, feel, I mean, I feel like it would be a little bit um, wild for them to, to suspect that you know, anyone would grant those requests, but can the corporation do anything? You mentioned enforcement. When people are congregating in areas uh, or you know, perhaps abusing uh, the facilities when they shouldn't be, uh, or demanding th that they use guest suites, for example, for visitors, 
uh, you know, what, what remedies can the condo have with preventing that sort of behavior? Again, I mean, you, you like to think that if people are spoken to in these tough times that they're going to be cooperative. Um, sometimes people just need to be reminded because they, they don't realize or they're, you know, they're not thinking about all the concerns that it impacts other people, not just themselves. Um, I mean, I suppose if you had some, a group that adamantly refused, I mean, right now there is enforcement um, publicly through the police if necessary to break up large groups. I'm, I'm sure the police are, are more than uh, at their um, at their limit right now in terms of how many of these they can respond to. So, um, you know, we, I think we all have to sort of be flexible and deal with each situation. But if you if you had a situation where someone's absolutely refusing to to block uh, to decongregate as a group, then I, I suppose the police might have to be called. I guess that, that sort of ties into one one thought that I had with condominiums that don't have balconies. So there's some older condos that uh, there may have three, 400 different units within that uh, condo. And there's, there could be some people there that are smokers. There could be pet owners that want to walk their dogs. But if they are stuck inside of their units and they don't have a balcony, uh, then they're going to have to leave their unit, uh, at least to walk their animal. Or if they, if they want to smoke and they feel that they need to smoke, uh, and they can't do it inside of their condo unit and they want to go outside, uh, there could be smoking areas that could be congregated with a number of people uh, and that obviously is not not advisable especially uh, given what the government said but furthermore if someone has um, this this disease or this virus and uh, they're supposed to be in quarantine but they're not and they're walking their pets or, or they're going out downstairs to smoke in front of the building is there anything that can be done in those circumstances so many condos right now, and it was, you know, a bit of a firm line when it first was coming out, you're seeing it a lot more, is to almost completely ban visitors. And the idea is to not want to have people who are coming from the outside to, um, to come into the building because they, first of all, they may be infected and unknowingly and, and they're spreading in the building, or even vice versa, they may be coming into contact with someone in the building who has COVID-19 and they're infected. So... Um, you know, if you, if in terms of walking your dog, if you're not able to do it yourself and you have been diagnosed, I mean, you still are able to pick up the phone, make arrangements for a friend to come to the door. Um, I would, or, or um, for, you know, special circumstances be made, whether it be to, to um, if, if you're able to go outside to bring the dog to the front door and have a dog walker walk the dog at the front door. If you don't, um, and then you're gonna need to get somebody up to the unit, uh, there'll need to be special circumstances to get that dog let out and the, for the person to take the dog out and then return them. Um, so I think there needs to be some flexibility, um, even with, with people that may have care workers, if you're a little older person then, and you need a care worker to come and visit you on, on a regular basis, obviously there needs to be exceptions made for those people, but the idea is to try to limit who's coming in and out. Um, in terms of the smoking issue, that becomes really problematic and we're seeing now not just smokers but even you know people are trying to work from home and the neighbor makes store might have children and they're you know everyone's getting a little bit more um tolerance is, is getting a little bit more difficult and i think you know there's no easy solutions for that you know every you're you know everybody has to at this point unfortunately be a little bit more forgiving um in terms of what you know of and, and considerate of each other 
uh, whether it be with children or with um, people working from home and needing absolute silence. There's, there's limits to what the condominium corporation can do at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and for that smoker, the only thing I could think of is if they can't get out um, and even open a window, um, you know, they're ideally not smoke at all in those circumstances. So, yeah. yeah. I know that's a, that's a tough one though. It is <laughs> not being a smoker myself. I'm, I, I probably don't understand as, as difficult as that would be. Yeah. The, the thought that came to mind was again, back to that human rights she brought up that they could say, well, I, I have a, I have a right to smoke. Uh, so I, I need to go outside and, and smoke. And then you again, could get into that same conversation where you have to weigh the needs of the many uh, over the needs of the few. And I guess the question is how far the corporation's uh, enforcement rights can go. Can you actually prevent that because you have a safety concern? Or do you have to meet some burden of proof to say, well, we can restrict you from going into the common elements to smoke if you are infected with COVID-19. So you must get a test for COVID-19. I feel like that can get out of hand um, and borderline on on human rights violation or harassment in the eyes of an owner but it, it's right. curious how much uh how much leeway the corporation can have or how far they can go with the enforcement measures it's interesting that the human rights uh, tribunal of ontario re- recently released a notification um basically saying cautioning people about treating people differently who have covid19 um and and thinking about that so that ties into exactly what you're saying i mean you know um and smoking is such a sensitive topic in condominiums because you have people as well who, um, if they smell smoke, they, they may also have a, a medical condition that it's, it's, you know, they can't have that happen. And I think, you know, there may be exceptions the corporation could make if there's a no smoking rule in the unit that the person, if they have COVID-19, be allowed to smoke in the unit provided that they ensure that it's, you know, um, maybe in a sealed room or something where it won't possibly um, permeate into uh, the hallway or into any other units but it's you know again it's all a bit of a uh, um, learning um, a learning exercise yeah I guess we all have to adjust and uh, there's no easy answer so I suppose these are some high level things that everyone can consider but each corporation each community uh, each declaration is, is probably different so seeking legal advice in specific circumstances is probably the way to go but hopefully we can impart a couple of uh, a couple of scenarios onto some of the people uh, listening or watching so that they can think uh, ahead of the curve so they don't have to be reactive they can be proactive if they see a situation in their community absolutely i mean it's always best again to protect boards managers um, to check with you know people like myself who can look at what the documents say and and you know you may not realize it or the client may not realize it but there are slightly different nuances to the advice we give based on the circumstances it's not the same for everybody across the board so um you know we need to look at those things and consider that when we're when we're telling you what we would recommend well the interesting thing about restricting visitors you know i, I thought that that might be a controversial subject but it seems like it is a uh, reasonable thing for a condo board to do uh, given safety concerns, I mean, it sounds like you agree with that. I'll be honest, I, I was not as much um, for it initially, um, because obviously, how can you tell people that, you know, you can't have a friend over? Um, you know, you're, we're not talking about a large group of people, we're talking about a friend or a parent, 
Um, but you know what, I think, you know, given this, the position the government's taken now, it's made it a lot easier for condo boards to make those decisions to say, you know what, again, the safest thing to do is we limit the people coming from the outside. Deliveries is a big thing that we get to ask to vote on a regular basis. So, you know, who's delivering food or, or products from Amazon? Um, you know, what, what, should we let them go up to the unit? Should we leave it with the concierge? Is the concierge going to be overwhelmed? Uh, with product, do the owners come down? What if they have COVID-19 or do arrangements made for the product to be delivered or the food to them? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's different in every building right now. Um, certainly what we're, we've kind of come, I think, consistently now across the board at most buildings to say is that um, if you're having a visitor, a food or delivery left be caught with concierge, that person not go up into the building and that if the resident is well enough for them to come down and get it themselves. But for those that are in self-isolation or those that have definitely been diagnosed with positive COVID-19, that special arrangements need to be made to deliver it to the unit and ensuring again precautions with gloves and wiping the door and all the rest of it um, to ensure that that person isn't coming out into the hallway other than to open the door and to pick up the parcel um, and then to resume their self-isolation. I think that's very sensible. I actually live in a condo myself and uh, my building has a similar policy where if you uh, live in the building, uh, they do not allow residents, uh, visitors or uh, residents, delivery people to get up into the units or to get past the elevators of the main lobby. So anybody who lives in my building has to go downstairs to the lobby for any sort of food delivery, any Amazon deliveries, uh, groceries, even to, to pick up, uh, to pick up um, part of me visitors. So I found that kind of challenging for myself because I came back uh, from the U.S. just about two weeks ago and I had to spend uh, the last two weeks in uh, self-quarantine. Thankfully, I had uh, no symptoms and I didn't have to leave the unit because people could come and we did make arrangements with security so that they could come up to the unit and drop off groceries for me. But I did find it a little challenging knowing that the policy was you must come downstairs. So you know, perhaps a good practical takeaway from that is if management is working in a building that has such a policy, they could always send out a survey or some sort of database where they can track who needs that kind of special assistance. And I suppose it could also be akin to what's in the emergency fire plan for every condo corporation in Ontario that's required to have one for anyone who requires uh, assistance in an emergency. So there's a right. lot in every fire plan. So adding to that people who are uh, quarantined or showing symptoms or uh, you know, have been diagnosed uh, would probably be helpful. But I guess it also circles back to what we said earlier, we have to make sure that we don't treat those people any differently. So there could always be that concern. Yes, you know, Nicholas Kiermetli has identified himself as requiring the support. Now am I going to be ostracized by the staff if I come down you know, a week later uh, and I'm finished my quarantine, um, for example, or are people going to be treated differently? So I guess everyone has to sort of keep that in consideration uh, when doing any sort of data collection. I think so. And I also think, I mean, it's really important for the board and management to set the right sort of, um, um, not to make it a stigma. When you're asking people to voluntarily, first of all, I, I think most buildings should be at this time, if they haven't already, really encouraging any owner or resident 
and and it becomes difficult more with the residents because the condo has less contact with residents than if you're an owner. Uh, I'm talking about the the non-owner residents. Um, but you know, you want to encourage people and make them feel comfortable that if they're telling that this information to management, there's a reason for it. It's for their protection as well as for everybody else, including the condo staff, and that it's it's going to be kept confidential. It's not going to be circulated that this unit on this floor has tested positive for COVID-19. I think there it's really it's important for the condos to set the right message um, that it's not a it's not a stigma. It's not a negative thing. It's there to protect you, and it's there to be a good citizen and protect your neighbors and and to really encourage those that have any concerns if they have it that they should confidentially report it and that special arrangements will be made so that they can and we can all get through this together. Now, does the condo have a right to ask that information from someone? Because I'm, I've heard in the past that, you know, we don't have the right to ask people about medical conditions, but does that, does that count in this situation or is this a different circumstance? I think it's a bit of a different circumstance. I mean, I think that it's certainly, I mean, obviously under Section 117 of the Condo Act and also occupies liability legislation and other legislations when we're talking about workplace safety, the condo corporation and those that are running the building have a duty to protect um, the residents. And I think it's a reasonable step that if you find out that somebody may have it, that you can ask them, that you can say, uh, and again, assure them that it's on a confidential basis. Um, and, and, and assure them that the answer they're given will be kept in confidence. Um, the difficulty becomes what if they refuse? And I, I don't think there really is anything you can do. Um, I mean, you could try public health, but I don't think they're gonna be able to assist in that matter. And so um, I, I've even had clients ask about, well, can we require the person to provide um, the, uh, the notice they receive from public health? Well. If they've already told you verbally that they have tested positive, I don't see how, and it's any business of the corporation to actually see the paper from public health. Mm -hmm. And if they've denied that they have COVID, well, then as far as the condo is concerned, you've taken your reasonable steps. Um, again, we have to trust the people, trust the occupants that they're going to be, um, you know, respectful of this situation. And if they're not feeling well to go out, but you know, we can't, we can't ask for blood work from, from our occupants. So we are limited and there is an element of good faith in, in this whole process. What about trades? Uh, this might be a selfish question, but um, if there is a cleaner or a security personnel that uh, has COVID or perhaps their spouse has COVID or they've come into contact with someone that has COVID, uh, can the corporation then ask uh, for documentation providing clearance before they are allowed to return to the community? So in circumstances like that, I mean, again, we're probably talking mostly about contracted um, companies that the corporations retain and those employees are coming to the site. And again, the duty really is on the employer, the contracting company, to ensure that they're not sending any staff to the building that either have COVID-19 knowingly to them or that are exhibiting any symptoms, health-related symptoms that really they shouldn't be at work. So, you know, we're telling a lot of our clients, again, if they haven't done so already, that they should be having direct communication with their, those companies to remind them of their obligation to take steps um, about um, ensuring that, uh, that the people they're sending to the building don't have proper um, uh, 
the, any health issues that reported recently. And yes, if somebody had tested positive for COVID-19, I would want something in writing probably from that company, not seeing the person's, um, the record of, of that they've completed, but just to say that um, we've confirmed that this person has, to our knowledge, complied with the necessary 14-day isolation period, and they are able to return to work. Is there a creative solution that management could perhaps use in a situation like this where we know that contractors that provide service to condos have agreements? They usually have a contract if they're a consistent party. Uh, and those ones are, are a bit easier to deal with in the way that I'm uh, going to suggest right now. But is there a way, knowing that those contracted services have to abide by condominium corporations' rules, regulations, and policies uh, for doing work for condos, to say, well, you know, we have a policy now, if you're gonna be doing work for us as a contractor, that if you have an issue with an employee that has COVID-19, that you disclose it to us, or you provide us with some sort of documentation that clears them before they come back. And the only reason I ask this is, uh, the corporation ultimately uh, hires all of these different contractors, and then we don't want an, a pandemic to spread within the community if we can avoid it. I'm just wondering if we can either put something into contracts or if it's already existing in language. And granted, I mean, you're talking off the cuff. You haven't seen any, any contract language, so maybe it's not a fair question. But just in a general principle, can we make demands like that of uh, people servicing condo corps uh, without having them sign something? So I think what's going to happen after this whole COVID crisis is we're going to see a lot of new types of provisions and contracts that we've never seen before. Um, I know as a firm, we're getting a lot of um, requests for the force majeure clause. So that's sort of the unexpected, almost, you know, uh, consequences in a contract to invoke those. And, and more and more of those types of provisions are going to get added to and they're going to be amended uh, in new contracts that are signed. Um, so I think what you've described, I, I, I think is a good idea. I think having a policy, even decide without what's in the contract is something the board could implement. Um, and I think it's consistent with what I said before, which is the duty that that company already has to ensure that if they're sending employees to work at a particular condominium building, that they are in a um, healthy um, state um, and not knowingly um, exhibiting symptoms or, or God forbid, infected with COVID-19 when they're working at the buildings. Yeah. Well, then it's interesting because we're talking about contracts now. I want to circle back to recreational facilities uh, because anybody who lives or operates uh, in a building that has a heavy uh, number of amenities will have service contracts. So if you have a gym, you may have a service maintenance contract for your equipment. If you have a pool, you may have a chemical treatment program with a third-party contractor. In this uh, situation, we don't really know how long this, this situation is gonna last. It could be a couple of months, it could be longer. It's anybody's guess, I suppose. So that raises an interesting question with those service contracts. Practically speaking, it probably makes sense and I'm sure vendors are not going to like me for saying this, not to have those contracts in place right now uh, because you're servicing amenities that are not being used. So financially, maybe it makes sense to shut them down. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you may be terminating contracts and there could be penalties, there could be termination periods. So uh, have you given any consideration to that to, to your clients or have clients asked you 
for legal advice on how, how do I get out of these contracts or what should I do given that I have amenities that are not being used and could be shut down for the foreseeable future? I think surprisingly, we haven't had that question asked yet, but I think it's, it's going to be coming very shortly because as we are all um, going through this, we're realizing that this is not a matter of a couple of weeks or even you know, a month. We're potentially looking at a number of weeks. And so, you know, I, I, I would not be surprised if, if we have condominium clients asking that what can we do with these service contracts now because um, the service that effectively they were servicing isn't, isn't operational currently. And a, a lot of it is going to depend on what's in the contract. What does the contract say? And there's, those are going to be on a one-mile basis. So it's really important to have whoever the condo's lawyer is to take a look at those provisions. Um, because and most of them won't have a termination provision a lot of them are for a fixed term um, mm -hmm. and unless there's a you know a really um, uh, really great clause that can sort of contemplate these circumstances which I would suspect probably there may not be um, it, it'll then come down to the business relationship between the condo and that company and whether that company um, is going to enforce a condo to make continued payments during this time um, and risk not having that business down the road. So um, I, I'm sure we're going to get flooded with that request. I think that's an excellent question. And um, again, it's going to depend on each contract and it's going to depend on um, the kind of relationship between the service provider and, and the client condo corporation. Yeah. yeah, the reason I bring it up is because we can see that economically in the future, there could be issues with the corporation's budgeting. And I say that for a number of reasons, right? Number one, we're using services potentially that uh, are not servicing the corporation anymore through no fault of their own. But if the government wants facilities closed and we can't have people congregating in groups, it doesn't really make sense to have a pool open and, and keep paying for treatment of a pool that's not being used. Exactly. So, you know, there's that to consider. The other thing to consider with budgeting is now we have all of these owners or residents that were working nine to five jobs and out of their homes at wherever their place of work is. And then they come home afterwards and spend their time in the evenings. Now we have people that are at home 24 uh, seven, as long as we see this going on and they're consuming more utilities. So corporations that are paying the utilities for water, hydro and gas, uh, are going to be having to increase those costs over and above what they've projected for. So we can very easily see that the cash flow for these condo corporations or the budgets can get out of line, especially if owners are not able to make payments because of economic hardships. I mean, perhaps they work for a pool company or a landscaping company, uh, which maybe is not the best example because I think that will still be used. Uh, but I guess it, it comes to another question, which is how condos can deal with these uh, financial challenges, not knowing when the situation will end. So I think, you know, one important thing that ultimately the condo, um, it's, it's caught between a rock and a hard place as a board because they want to help the people in their community. Their board, most board members are owners themselves who may have lost their jobs or otherwise experiencing some financial constraints. And so there's, there's definitely the one side of it. And the other side, you've got, as you pointed out, you know, there's still bills coming in. Um, the condo, especially with utilities. Now, there, I think we're 
going to have some relief in terms of the hydro rates that's been announced by the government. But, you know, there's still going to be um, probably greater utilities um, bills coming in this year because of the number of people at home and, and other expenses. And so the condo needs, it has a legal obligation under um, the, its condominium act and under the, the condominium documents to make sure that it has sufficient funds coming in to pay those bills. And so if you're a condo that's been carrying a surplus, um, you may have a little bit more flexibility um, to amend a budget mid-year, um, you know, if, if, you, if you're in a luxury situation like that and give people a little bit of a break for the balance of the year. But for other buildings that don't have a surplus, um, you know, they really need to um, ensure that there is enough money coming in to, to pay those bills. And so, you know, you're really limited in terms of what constraints or what, what um, um, relax, um, trying to think of the right word I want to say, you know, what sort of I guess. relief, what relief that you can give to residents. And, and, and the, the one thing, you know, that is sort of built into the condominium act is that three month payment for the condo. Um, and there's been a lot of talk lately about registering liens and all the rest of it and whether or not the, uh, emergency, um, sort of statutory relief period by which to take legal action if there's a limitation period, whether that applies to condo liens. And thank, unfortunately, the government hasn't said for certain whether it does, but you know, there is ability for owners um, who are having some financial difficulties to, um, and, and for boards to give some relief to owners um, as long as the amount that they are owing stays within that three month period. So if an owner needs to miss April, um, but uh, is able to pay May or going forward, then they be, might be able to make up that lost month over a longer period of time. Um, so it's, you know, but what becomes more difficult is when obviously the condo having to make sure that it has money to pay those bills. And so you can't, they can't knowingly uh, give relief and they need to be very fair in how they're doing it, that it's, it's, it's given really to everybody who needs it. Um, across the board and um, but again the most important thing is they are there to ensure that those bills are getting paid and that's may result unfortunately in some hard decisions that boards are going to have to be making uh, later this year when they're deciding whether they have to lean people or not to collect those monies. It's interesting with with respect to the limitations period so you know even taking a step back having everybody understand what that means is that we have 90 days to issue a lien on the title of a unit to secure the debt uh, over and above any other debtors on that unit. Uh, if a unit owner provides payment, um, or sorry, rather doesn't provide payment when they're requested. So if someone doesn't pay their maintenance fees on the first of the month, you have 90 days to collect that uh, by way of lien. And if you don't, there are other collection matters that you can have. You can leave that on a status certificate until the unit sells and then collect it during the sale, or you can go to small claims court. Um, I'm not sure if there are any other methods of collection, but if you're looking at having three months uh, that you can sort of forgive uh, and then just carry forward so that limitation period carries forward, uh, you know, I guess, I guess that's a, a nice way to give them a bit of a courtesy to make up some of their payments, but it could also sort of bite the corporation a little bit. If they don't have a surplus, and they give that sort of relief to several owners or, or a large percentage of owners, then we could be facing a cash flow issue where the money that's coming in from those maintenance fees 
three months or two months behind now doesn't fund your budget to pay those bills. So I guess to your point, Carol, we have to be very cognizant and very careful about the cash flow and, and giving exceptions or exemptions to owners in a, in a sympathetic fashion, while good, needs to also be financially responsible. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, as I said, the bills have to get paid and, and um, condo needs to look at for, foremost, making sure that that money is coming in. And, and sadly, today's April the 1st. And, you know, talking to a few clients this morning, they had very few checks. Those that are not on PAP that are dependent on checks, there's very few checks that were left there in the mailbox. And that's, I think people are, are being very cautious, but it could become a huge problem for condos if that they're not getting that influx of funds that they need to pay, to keep the lights on and to, uh, to make sure that, um, and that the penalties aren't being uh, incurred and, and other potential um, legal action from contractors that are getting paid. So, um, you know, it's really, I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and I know boards are wanting to obviously work with their owners, but um, they may be limited in what they can do. And that's just, you know, a, a sad fact. But they can lean if they need to. They can issue a notice of lien, a lien, and, and go through the whole collection procedure if it is a dire circumstance. Is that true? I mean, yes. I mean, the other thing I would say is it depends how much money we're talking about. If we have a, a, an amount, let's say an insurance deductible that we're talking being 25 and I've even seen up to $100,000 at some of the downtown condos. And if that's what's at risk, I mean, I would not hesitate, unfortunately, to put the lien on and secure the amount and then uh, have time to pay. Hopefully, if it's a deductible, the owner has insurance and their own insurance company will be stepping in to pay it if, they're, if they haven't already. Um, but, um, and then other, other things to be concerned about would be chargebacks. Again, if there's a chargeback cost, and we're, we're talking about you know, a more significant sum, it's always preferable to secure it and then you can work with the owner for payment. But, but if the condo at the end of the day can't pay its bills, um, whether you've leaned it or not, um, you, you know, you're, they have to take steps to ensure that there's proper funds coming in. And um, because that's, you know, everybody will suffer then um, if, if the bills aren't being paid as opposed to the, the few owners that really do need the assistance. So like you said, some difficult decisions that need to be made, but some responsible ones and, and hopefully some educated ones using all the resources that a condo can have, including their lawyer's advice. Uh, but I suppose the takeaway is that each corporation out there is gonna have to look at a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, now more than ever, the financial management of those condominiums is gonna be very important to actually understand uh, what the financial position is month to month, because if there's some sort of inaccuracy there, boards could be making decisions based on information that's that's not accurate and then exposing their communities to cash flow issues or inability to pay bills and then at the end of the day someone's going to be liable whether that's the corporation incurring additional costs for interest or late payments or choosing which vendor gets paid on month one and which vendor gets paid on month two we certainly hope that nothing will ever get that bad but we obviously want to be prepared and, and plan for that sort of eventuality so we can avoid it. Absolutely. I mean, I think for the boards to take a strong look at the budget numbers as they come in each month, um, actual versus what they budgeted for and see, I mean, it may be possible that if, if certain expenditures have been uh, removed from the budget, 
uh, if there's service contracts that they've managed to be able to get out of, that they can um, offer some more relief to their owners um, by, and that would be best by amending the budget. But I would suspect that for most condos, um, that most will not be in that position and they really need to be on top of the funds that are coming in and the expenditures that are coming out and have to make decisions, um, some tough decisions, um, and it will be on a case-by-case -case basis. Do you think it would be a good time to do that review now or should condo boards be watching for the next month or two and just sort of getting their bearings before looking at revising a budget or, or is that would that be too soon at this point? I think, I mean, even in terms of speaking to some of the real estate lawyers um, who don't necessarily practice condo but more mortgage work, etc., everybody's sort of waiting to see what happens after this April 1st. How many people are in default? Who didn't pay? And, and I think it's going to be the next 30 days that's really critical in deciding, um, you know, whether more drastic action needs to be taken or whether the corporation can simply uh, be a little bit more lenient um, to those that haven't, that haven't paid in the circumstances. Okay, so I guess we'll stay tuned uh, for the full Blair Rubinoff uh, condo law newsletter and see in the next 30 days what you guys suggest. We will. Please stay tuned. Yes, for sure. So what happens with chargebacks? We mentioned, you mentioned that, um, if there's a chargeback that's happening. I know the land board and tenant board is not hearing evictions right now, but is uh, the small claims court still hearing disputes with chargebacks that can't be collected by way of lien if that needs to go that direction? So um, for chargebacks, um, I mean, if ideally, as I said, the safest thing to do if you're getting within that three month period is to put a lien on it and then just don't enforce. Um, but for those that have missed the lien period, um, right now you, um, you're not gonna be able to pursue your action in the small claims court. Um, the emergency um, legislation that was issued by the province has provided currently um, a, I believe it's a 60-day uh, window um, sort of suspension on any limitation period. So, for example, uh, if you, um, if your limitation period for a charge to enforce a chargeback amount was going to expire on April the 1st, that period is suspended and um, you're going to be given additional time once, the, and, and, and the government may again provide a further extension. Um, but some additional time by which to do so. So um, you're not going to be um, statutory barred to commence a legal action right now uh, if the period is about to expire, um, so long as that uh, relief period has been given by the government. Um, once it, and once it's over, then you will, the corporation would be, need to make sure that they act quickly to issue the action um, in a timely way or else they could risk to be out of time. Okay, so now for right now, actions are not being um, reviewed, but at some point they will be once this extension has been um, expired. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so when I mean actions, I'm talking the limitation period. So in most cases, there is a two-year uh, period provided um, for most matters from when the condo knew or ought to have known on a matter. So for example, if there's a large flood and there's a chargeback incurred and the owner um, is given the, the request for payment and they don't pay and you have not secured it properly by a lien, um, you would normally have two years from when that incident occurred if you were to bring an action in small claims. So if you're right now on the cusp of that two-year period being up, 
what the government has said is that no, we're providing a relief for those periods and that you will not be um, later barred from bringing that claim uh, so long as there's this sort of moratorium on the limitation period. So the deadline's been moved. It's been moved, yeah. And a lot of the deadlines have been moved. One thing that in terms of court matters, because I do some of my practices is some court work, quite a bit of litigation work actually. So the courts are officially only dealing with urgent, urgent matters at this time. So um, that can still provide relief to condominium corporations in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you have a situation where someone is engaging in behavior that's a safety issue to others, um, the courts should be available currently to address those immediate safety concerns. But for any sort of other matters, matters that are considered not urgent, um, those matters are not being heard at this time. Okay, well, that's that's very vital information because some some condo boards and some managers probably don't know that. That'd be very helpful for them to take away. Uh, is is the Condo Act being enforced uh, with respect to limitations periods or timelines rather? And and context on that question, so I clarify what I mean. There's a six month period there where condo boards are supposed to hold an AGM after the end of their fiscal year. Uh, now with all of the social distancing requirements, I, I don't see how 50 or 100 people can get into the same room and hold an AGM. So, you know, can condo boards or management companies be penalized for not holding their annual general meetings right now? So um, my view of this, and I think it's, it's most lawyers who practice in this area, is that you cannot proceed with any sort of condominium meetings at this time. Um, there are probably few and far betweens in terms of exceptions. Um, for example, a condominium corporation that has completely lost quorum, uh, where there is not a board in place um, and where checks need to be issued um, and, and, and decisions made, that may be an emergency situation where it would be appropriate to have a meeting, um, but a meeting with very specific restrictions. And the one that I do know about is they held the meeting purely by proxy. Um, they had um, two people, basically the manager and the assistant manager in attendance, um, and, but the rest of the meeting was done by proxy, and that was to ensure that there could be a board elected so that um, the matter goes forward. Now, th this type of meeting is not without risk, right? Because you can always have people say, well, I wanted to show up, I wanted to talk, and I couldn't do it, you should have had the meeting in, in any event. And, there's some, you know, there's some validity to those arguments, but um, in a situation where you have urgent matters that have to be attended to that you cannot delay, I think there's some, um, some measures you can implement to have that meeting. But again, if you don't, I wouldn't have the meeting unless you're in those type of situations. Mm -hmm. And we're currently waiting, I think, to hear from the economy authority about, um, you know, extending sort of formally um, those those um, sort of relief from the provisions in the Condo Act to have your annual general meeting within the six-month fiscal year and for this year. We're waiting for that, um, but most corporations that I'm aware of have made the decision on their own that in these unusual times, um, these emergency times, that it is too much of a risk. You cannot obviously hold a meeting where you're having multiple people um, that are congregating together and that that's that's how our meetings operate so um, 
And I guess obviously for those condos that have an e-voting bylaw, they're they already in place. They may be in a better position because they can hold voting completely electronically. Um, and, but for those that don't, there's no current provision in the act um, and the if, if they're registered um, before 2017, they probably don't have it in their existing bylaws that would let them proceed purely by way of electronic um, measures with which would include the voting aspect of meetings. Well, speaking about bylaws, it's it's interesting because one other circumstance that, that might be a, a reason to hold a meeting is if a corporation does get into financial jeopardy, passing a borrowing bylaw, uh, perhaps to fund some of the inadequacies in the budget or, or the finances of the condo, uh, would make sense. But to your point, you need an electronic voting bylaw first. So no matter which way you slice it, there's going to be some sort of exposure. I suppose practically in order to get proxies for such a meeting, you could have volunteers go through the building to get votes for an electronic uh, voting bylaw first. Uh, but again, you're risking exposure for people knocking on doors. And I suppose not a lot of people are going to really want to open their door uh, to strangers right now, uh, given the fact that everyone is trying to stay uh, amongst themselves and, and try to stay private and try to stay safe. I completely agree. Actually, I had I have a client today who had intended on having a borrowing bylaw and truly is in a state where they, aside from this coronavirus, where they need those funds, and they are they are not able to get the pro the meeting done by way of proxy for that very reason. People don't want to sign proxies. They don't want to be knocking on doors. Um, you know, people are concerned about obviously touching the paperwork that involves with proxies. Um, and I mean, there is, you could proceed with a get quorum or one of the other um, packages available for um, electronic proxies, which are permissible without, without having a, a um, specialized e-voting bylaw. So you can currently have electronic proxies. Um, and, you know, that may be one solution for those condos that are really in those situations where they desperately need to have a meeting for, for fiscal emergency reasons or others, um, that may provide an option to them. So I guess the takeaway is, again, case by case, every corporation is unique, but for general meetings, like your annual general meeting, probably best to defer that. Uh, but if you've got a serious situation where you need a borrowing bylaw or you've got no quorum on your board and you have no board, or other emergency circumstances, there are some options there. There are some ways that you can hold those meetings, uh, but it will really depend on, on what kind of documents you have in your, in your building uh, for your declaration and your bylaws. And I suppose as well, the community at large, are they receptive to proxies? Are they receptive to technology? Um, I know some communities have had uh, social committees or relief committees that are helping neighbors with getting groceries or uh, as we talked about earlier, walking a pet, for example. Uh, so those are very, very admirable initiatives. Um, I don't suppose that there's a hell of a lot of liability with that, but you know, I, I, I'm telling that to a lawyer and you probably have a couple things. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that there are other creative solutions that we can all find and, and implement to try and help us all get through this this issue absolutely i mean ho hopefully you'll see more initiatives and from even um board members if the two communicate with their owners using technology um you know some kind of uh even a, a you know 
something similar to this for their residents that they can provide information to them and make them feel like they're all part of a community still while we're all uh, you know staying indoors and, and in our own units um, and and yes um, you know it's great to see neighbors helping each other out as long as they're adopting all the right practices and, and washing hands etc um, with helping with deliveries and pets and, and uh, other needs that their neighbors might have so Hopefully we'll see a lot more of that. It's very important. I hope so. Well, well what about uh, board meetings? Because we talked about AGMs and, and we just mentioned, uh, you know, technology like this where you and I are able to communicate face-to-face uh, -face virtually um, through this, uh, this platform. Can board meetings be held through this platform or, or can they be done uh, via conference call? Absolutely. I mean, they can certainly, a, a lot of boards have, have, reverted to um, having meetings by uh, you know electronically with Skype and other and other measures um, and they as long as they can all participate at the same time um, then yes that's proper um, that's that will comply with what the condominium act requires um, making decisions by email and that is not uh, acceptable under the condominium act currently you can um, obviously communicate with each other via email between meetings but when you're actually going to be making a decision and you're going to have a resolution it needs to be done at a properly called board meeting and that means getting everybody together at least a quorum of the directors uh, together um, and to make those decisions concurrently so um, but thankfully we're in an era of technology which is just improving all the time um, and really um, except for I would say probably very few boards, which, um, you know, there may be the odd person that doesn't have a laptop or computer, but um, in most cases, I think people should be able to make that happen. Um, and I think regardless of, of this situation, I think we're going to be changing a lot of our practices going forward generally, and we should accept more uh, the use of technology um, for efficiency's sake, for health reasons, for a whole bunch of other reasons. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good start. It's actually a, a, an opportunity instead of a negative thing um, for people to use the technology um, to make our lives easier. Well, I couldn't have said it any better myself. I, I believe very strongly in that, Carol. Um, but thank you for, for joining us and giving us your perspective on all of these issues. Uh, although I know we covered a lot of ground and a lot of different subjects, I know it was uh, a lot of topics were sort of surface level, just to give everybody an idea of where some of these issues could go. I think that we could probably spend an hour just talking about uh, employer relationships with condo employees. We could probably spend an hour talking about contractors. I know I, I pushed that a couple of times during the conversation, even though that's more of a management issue to try and uh, deal with their trades. But there are things obviously that we can all consider uh, for all of those different avenues that we can talk about. But hopefully this conversation gave anyone who's watching or listening some indication about what some of the pros and cons are with some of the decisions that can be made by condo boards and managers in response to COVID-19. Is there anything that you would suggest to a condo board right now that perhaps we haven't covered that you'd like to provide in terms of advice or, or recommendations at this point? I think, unfortunately, I think it, hopefully everyone can just stay in as positive, um, positive mindset as we all can right now. Um, I know it's very tough on boards because you're volunteer boards and you're giving your time as it is. And, um, you know, we're not always equipped to be dealing with these kind of emergency situations. 
um, you know, so hopefully, um, you know, you're the leaders for your community and um, hopefully you can, can thank you and continue to do so and also for the, the management teams. And, you know, again, not to plug lawyers, but if, you know, these, there's all of these things as we've talked about has changed. It's changed a lot in the last six weeks. It will continue to change. So um, we'd encourage you to reach out to your legal counsel, um, to me if you'd like, and to, um, you know, get some quick answers to some of these questions as it's evolving. So, um, and just everyone to stay well, stay well and stay healthy. And if anyone does need to reach you, Carol, how can they get in contact with you? So you can phone me at my direct line at Fogel Rubinoff, 416-941-8820. Uh, on most days, I'm currently working remotely, but I do check my voicemail and also even better to send me an email. So my email address is cdirks, spelled C-D-I-R-K-S, at Fogler's, F-O-G-L-E-R-S, dot com. Okay, well, thank you so much, Carol. I'm sure that people will be blowing up both your phone and your email now, but uh, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, I hope everybody uh, had some value here and they got something good out of this discussion, and, and hopefully we can have you back again. Um, hopefully nothing changes too drastically for, uh, you know, unplanned circumstances in the next couple of weeks. But if it does, uh, we'll be happy to have you back and, and uh, have another conversation. Thanks, Nicholas. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much and uh, all the best and stay safe out there. You too.